0: This morning, we're returning to pick up in this passage where we began last week, hopefully to make a little further progress than we did last week. Last week, it seemed like turned into a rather lengthy introduction to, uh, to the text. We only managed to get through uh, a couple of points, so we're going to pick it up this morning, and uh, by the grace of God, we might actually finish the text before us this morning, we did say last week that this is a little bit different kind of sermon than is uh, typical for us around here, and that is that we're not going to just stay here in Matthew 7 and exposit this verse by verse, but we're going to treat this section of Scripture within a larger context of a more instructional kind of message with regard to the topic of false prophets and false teachers. Jesus is uh, closing out, we told you this last week, he is closing out his Sermon on the Mount here. And he's making his appeal to the multitudes, to the crowds that have been in attendance. And he is calling them to make a decision. They have listened attentively to him as he has continually laid out the path of righteousness. That which is essential to enter into the kingdom of heaven and he has sharply contrasted it with the the way of righteousness that they have been brought up with that which their culture has embodied that which in its highest form is modeled by the scribes and the pharisees and so Jesus has continually been drawing that contrast back and forth and back and forth and it's now time for the people to decide And so he brings this message to the close here, and he exhorts them to choose the way of life. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7, he makes it very clear by the the metaphor here of the two paths, the narrow gate, the narrow path, the wide gate, and the broad path, and the narrow gate and the narrow path leading to life, and the broad gate and the broad path filled with people leading to eternal destruction. I was thinking a little bit about the, uh, the narrow path, actually. Uh, last night I stopped at the grocery store to, to pick up a few things, and, and uh, the grocery store we attend has recently installed a turnstile uh, that you have to pass through when you go into the store, and uh, you can't even get your grocery cart through it. There's a separate turnstile for the grocery cart. And I suppose it's probably a shoplifting kind of prevention thing or something like that. But it, but it just occurred to me, as, as you enter into the store and you've got your cart in your hand, you can't, even, you can't even wheel your grocery cart into the store. You have to be separated. The cart goes through one door and you go through this little turnstile. And, and in a sense, the turnstile represents well this narrow gate that Jesus talks about. It, it strips you of everything. You can't bring any baggage with you as you go through. You enter into the kingdom naked, as it were. Whereas the broad path, populated by the multitudes, allows one to, to carry along their baggage, their religious baggage, their, their uh, economic baggage, their lifestyle baggage, is just bring it on with you. And Jesus says it looks good, there's a sign over the door that says this way to heaven, but the... The bitter disappointment in the end is that it leads to destruction. And then he transfers his thinking here in verse 15 with a warning. You see it here before you. Beware of the false prophets. Beware of the false prophets. And then he goes in to talk about them. And he warns here about the false prophets because it is the false prophets who are the hucksters and advertisers for the broad way. They are the ones who are whistling and saying, come on, this way, and we'll get you there. Just follow us. The context here, of course, those who are advertising the broad broad way are the very scribes and Pharisees that Jesus has been contrasting himself with right along in this sermon. So it would be a mistake to assume the broad path was an easy path, necessarily. It could be a very rigorous religious path, but it is still, nonetheless, the path of destruction. And that introduced us to the topic of false prophets. And that's what we got into last week, and that's what we hope to complete this week. False prophets. Now, what is a prophet? What is a prophet? We asked that question last week. And we answered it this way, a prophet is a person who acts as God's mouthpiece, passing on what they have received from God. They, they act as the mouthpiece of God. They speak that which has been spoken to them. And we noted last week the, the danger of that is that when God speaks, His people are obligated to obey And so there's a tremendous danger here when someone says they speak for God and do not. Because the people of God have been conditioned, have been trained to be obedient to the Word of God when they hear it. So to hear a message that purports to come from God obligates you to be obedient to it. And the danger lies, of course, in when it's a false message, not originating with God. We also noted last time that the, the false prophets that were so prevalent in the Old Testament and appear in the New also sort of give way gradually over time, it seems, as the New Testament progresses, to the danger of the false teacher. And so the false prophet leading into the false teacher. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, and this is all review, hopefully, sort of equates the two of them there in that verse for us. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, speaking historically, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Peter provides that bridge idea that the false prophet of old that threatened the people of God of the Old Testament Transitions into the false teacher of the New Testament. Doesn't mean the false prophet goes away, he's still there and still deadly dangerous, but the false teacher comes alongside, and the characteristics are very similar between them. So, as we work through this morning seven characteristics of false prophets, so that we don't fall into their deadly embrace, we will interchangeably be speaking about false prophets. And we will be speaking about false teachers. All right, seven characteristics of the false prophet. The first one we gave you last week is, number one, they are Christ-denying. They are Christ-denying. And what we mean by that is that they always attack Jesus' person and His work. They go after his person, the person of Christ, they go after the work of Christ. That is, they attack his humanity, or they attack his deity, or they attack his work of redemption. That is the hunting ground for the false prophet, for the false teacher. We illustrated that in a number of scripture verses, but I'm just going to take you to one of them this morning to get your mind going here. So I'll take you to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2. And verses 22 and 23, 1 John 2, 22 and 23, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture passages together this morning, so I'm going to hear a lot of rustling pages, or I suppose tablet swipes, although I don't know if you can hear such a thing. Somebody ought to create a program, right, for the tablet that sounds like rustling pages when, you, when you're swiping it, huh? Here we go, First uh, John chapter 2, verses 22-23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And that was verse 23, and I missed verse 22, which uh, comes before that, actually. So back up the tape and let's try it again. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. That is, they deny His deity and they deny His role as Savior. And in doing that, they, they deny the Father's witness to Jesus as the Messiah. So their attack here that John lays out is a, is, a, is a Christ-denying attack. It is the focus of their attack upon the truth. They're Christ-denying. Secondly, they are deceptive. They are deceptive. For that, I'll turn you back again to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15, beware, Jesus says, of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We noted last time that a little earlier in this chapter, Jesus had spoken, verse 6, about not giving what is holy to dogs and not throwing pearls before swine. We called it the dogs and the hogs. And we said that we're not to throw the eternal truth before those who will merely disdain it and turn upon us and attack us. And it's not all that difficult to figure out who the dogs and the hogs are, but the false teachers, the false prophets, it's more difficult. They are deceptive. Jesus says that they come to us or to you in sheep's clothing. That is, they come in disguise. They come in such a way that they could pass themselves off as as part of the community of believers. I'm not going to take the time to go through it all with you again, but I understand the, the statement here, the sheep's clothing is not that they come to pass themselves off as just another sheep, but they come to pass themselves off as a shepherd, one who is wearing the clothing made from the product of sheep. They have donned the robe of the prophet they have put on the garment of the shepherd and yet they are seeking to deceive the people they have no intention of shepherding the people in truth in fact they are Christ denying people they are deceptive we can see that in uh, in Matthew 24 we'll turn you there to 24 verse 11 Jesus here is speaking about the time of the tribulation, a time when the church has been removed by rapture. God is taking up his program with Israel again, and he is warning here, chapters 24 and 25, called the Olivet Discourse, he is warning about a number of things, not the least of which are the rise of the false prophet again. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Down to verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And what we can understand from that is that their, that their deceptions are very clever. They're very, they're very convincing. They uh, appear to be very authentic even down to the, to the doing of signs and wonders, such that people are taken in, people are deceived. Even the, the elect, even the, the chosen of God among Israel, it says that, that they are in danger as well of this deception. So the false prophet, the false teacher, specializes in deception. They are a deceptive group of people. That takes us to number three, and this is where the information begins to get new. Number three, they are devoid of virtue. They are devoid of virtue. They are Christ denying, they are deceptive. Third, they are devoid of virtue. Repeatedly, the scripture emphasizes the fact that that those who are opposed to God are opposed because they desire to be their own master. They refuse to submit to God's rule in their lives, God's sovereign rule over them. They want to be their own master. They reject His coming kingdom and seek to establish their own. And by cutting themselves off from God in this way, by this rebelliousness of heart, they are addicted to their own fallen fleshly appetites. They have ruled out the possibility of participating in Messiah's eternal kingdom and therefore they must establish a kingdom of their own. The only kingdom available to them is the one that they can construct on their own and it is the kingdom of this world and it is a kingdom that is based upon an attempt to fulfill fallen fleshly appetite. And so the false prophet, the false teacher can be identified by their lifestyle. Their lifestyle, the way they live, the way they behave, they are devoid of Christian virtue. Let me show you what I mean by this by taking you to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, and this is a recurring theme in the New Testament, by the way. These false teachers, these false prophets... They are driven by their earthly passions, their fleshly passions. Romans 16 and verse 18. Paul is warning in verse 17, the church at Rome, about them. In verse 18 he says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, literally belly. They are slaves of their belly. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The false prophet, the false teacher, is a slave not of Christ, for they have rejected his rule over them. they instead become a slave of their own appetites, a slave of their own belly. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes very similarly about them. Philippians 3, verses 17 and following. Philippians 3, and beginning in verse 17, Paul writes, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have from us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their, again, belly, appetite here, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. They worship their appetites. They worship their fleshly desires. They glory, Paul says, in their own shame, those things that are shameful those things that in Ephesians Paul says shouldn't even be spoken of are the very things they traffic in. It is their glory. They worship and serve the flesh. We see in 2nd Peter chapter 2, turn over there to the right, 2nd Peter 2. Peter tells us they are motivated by greed. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In their greed. That is, they are not satisfied. They're, they are constantly lusting after more and more and more of the passion of their flesh. They can never get enough of it. Further on, same chapter, verses 13 and following, Second Peter, it's a little bit into the verse here. It says, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Drop down to verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. You get the picture. They are sensual. They are arrogant. They revel in it. They they can't get enough of it. Listen, beloved, you can see this even today. Among those who, who are trafficking in false doctrine, false teachers, false prophets, you will find sexual immorality Frequently accompanies their lifestyles. They can be characterized by greed never enough, extravagance in their living, arrogant in the way they handle themselves, a desire to be served, which is the very opposite of what our Lord said, right? For even the Son of Man, he says Mark ten forty five, did not come to be served but to what? But to serve and to give his life are ransom for many, among the false prophet, among the false teacher, you will not find a heart of service. Just the opposite. You will find those that that want to be served, those that want to indulge the flesh to its ultimate. They are devoid of virtue. Fourth, they are devilish. They are devilish. The spiritual motivation that lies behind the false prophet, the false teacher, is satanic. It is satanic. They are, in a very real sense, the children and the agent of the evil one. We see it in John's gospel, spoken very clearly to us in John chapter 8 and verse 44, a shocking statement. Absolutely shocking. Jesus is identifying what animates the leadership of the nation of Israel. These are the scribes and the Pharisees, right? These are the, the ones who are religious to, to the nth degree. These are the promoters of the broad path. And Jesus, Jesus said to them, verse 44 of John chapter 8, You are of your father, the devil. Now let that sink in. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Well, what are those desires? He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That is an incredible indictment of the nation. Jesus says to to those who are in the highest pinnacles of spiritual oversight and authority among the people, those to whom the people look up to and want to emulate... He says, you are of your father the devil. You are so far removed from God. And they will prove him right. Because it won't be long after this that they will cry for him to be crucified and for a murderer to be released in his place. They're devilish at the core. They promote devilish teachings false doctrines first Timothy chapter 4 First Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2 But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Doctrines of demons. Where does the teaching come from? That teaching that is Christ denying, what is its origin, what is its source? Paul makes it very clear. Jesus says it directly to them. It comes from the evil one himself. And it is designed to lure God's people away from the truth. False teaching, doctrines of demons. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 4. First John chapter three verse four. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Verse eight. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. They are devilish, in that they live and they and they teach lawlessness. That is opposition to God's rule. It's what characterizes their lives. It's what characterizes their doctrine. Opposition to God. Satan himself is the original rebel. And he fell and and swept away a third of the angels with him. And he is continually seeking to draw away the people of God from the truth. Devilish people. God, by His Spirit, places His children in churches. He he accumulates together in a body those whom He desires. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the gifting of the Spirit for the common good within the body. Beloved, we shouldn't be so naive to think that the evil one, Satan himself, is not also actively at work. seeking. sow within a body his agents, his children, to disrupt the work of God. He is alive, he is well, he is active. He is constantly probing our defenses, seeking to sow wickedness among the people of God. Now, people have asked me, they said, do, do, do people know that they're serving Satan, these, these false teachers, these false prophets? Do they know, really? I mean, do they wake up in the morning and, and they say to themselves, another day to serve Satan? Some do, perhaps. And many, probably not. Many, probably not. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 13 makes an interesting statement. Second Timothy three thirteen. Paul says there evil men, and the imposters will proceed from bad to worse. And then look at this: deceiving and being what? Deceived, deceiving and being deceived. That is, uh, they believe their own lies. They are, they are drawn in by their own false teaching. They are animated and motivated by their own bellies, by their, by their desire to fulfill their, their passions and their lusts of unredeemed flesh. They are in open rebellion against Christ and His Lordship. They are seeking to establish their own kingdom, but they are deceived by their own false teaching and false doctrine. My answer to the question of those that have asked is, I think for the most part, that most of them are deceived individuals. Terrible, terrible thought, terrible bondage to find oneself in. They are devilish. Fifth, fifth, they are dangerous. They are dangerous. That takes us back to Matthew chapter 7. Verse 15, Matthew 7, 15, they are dangerous. Beware. Present imperative conveys the idea of a continual action. That is, be on the lookout. Be on guard. Don't let your guard down. Don't ever turn your back for a moment. Pay attention. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing But inwardly are what? Ravenous wolves. That's an interesting description. They are ravenous wolves. The wolf is a very skillful hunter, very effective hunter. The wolf is known for being sly, right? The wolf is known for being ruthless, vicious. They hunt in packs, But the worst that a wolf can do to you is destroy one's body. Isn't that true? The wolves that Jesus is warning about here destroy one's soul. They are of a grave danger. They present a a spiritual danger. But they carry with them the means to destroy one's soul. Beware. Beware. It is not merely a passing threat, Jesus says. It is an ongoing danger. You must be vigilant. You must be on the lookout. You must constantly be aware of your surroundings and your circumstances. What road am I on? For they will slaughter me. They will slaughter me. Paul speaks to the elders of the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, I'll turn you there. Acts 20. See the same kind of language? Acts 20 and verse 29. Paul's warning the leadership of the church at Ephesus. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I'm warning you. When I leave, Paul says, the threats will mount The savage wolf, the false teacher, the false prophet will will seek to ingratiate themselves among you, to destroy you. Even from within yourselves, those that you perhaps thought were part of the sheepfold will indeed show themselves to be false. Seeking to divide the church, seeking to destroy the church. Plants, agents, moles, deeply embedded is the idea. They're dangerous. Go with me back into the Old Testament to Jeremiah chapter 8. Let's see why they're so dangerous. Jeremiah 8. And by the way, if I'm scaring you, then I'm accomplishing what I'm intending. You should be scared. I'm scared. These are serious matters. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. Speaking about the false prophets in Israel. It's an interesting little statement that Jeremiah gives us here in chapter 8, verse 11. They, that is the false prophets, heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially. Saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. What does he mean by that? They heal the wounds of God's people superficially. They they declare that God is pleased with them when he's not. They declare peace, peace. That is, that, that God is at peace with the nation when in reality, God is not at peace with the nation. God is angry with the nation. They are dangerous. Because what they say is seductive. They say, you're okay. God is, is happy with you. God is satisfied with you. They do it by means of a false gospel. You can be right with God. And God is, will be at peace with you. God will be pleased with you if you follow the broad path. The prophet Jeremiah says, there's no peace. There is no peace. We see it in, uh, turning back to the left here, in Isaiah, the same basic idea. Isaiah 30, verse 10. Now here in verse 9, Isaiah, Uh, Isaiah is criticizing the rebellious people, verse 9. These rebellious people, verse 10, they, they say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Now in the context, the the criticism here is of the nation itself. And and basically saying you're rejecting the true prophets of God. And you're you're gathering to yourselves false prophets who are telling you what you want to hear. But that gives us insight into the danger of the false prophet, the false teacher. How do they approach? Well, they approach by, by words that are pleasing to the ears. They tell you things you want to hear. They make... It sound good. You can hang on to your sin. And God will be happy with you. Can't help but, but uh, take me all the way into the New Testament to 2 Timothy. This is good. This is the way to break in your Bible, by the way. Some of your Bibles are always falling open to Matthew chapter 7. So this is a way to kind of work on uh, breaking them in properly. 2 Timothy chapter 4, you know, I read these words in Isaiah and my mind goes immediately to 2 Timothy 4. Verses 3 and 4 where Paul is warning Timothy here to to be diligent about preaching the word, right? In season and out of season. That means when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, Timothy. Why? Well, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Same basic idea. People don't want to hear the truth. And so they accumulate to themselves those who will speak what is pleasant to their ears, that which does not confront them in their unbelief. The false prophet, the false teacher is dangerous because they comply with that notion. They tell you what you want to hear. Give you one more Ezekiel 22. You're not going anywhere today, are you? Ezekiel 22. Somebody was laying bets that this couldn't be done in two. I don't remember what the line was. Ezekiel twenty-two verses one and two. The prophet writes the following: Ezekiel twenty-two one and two. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations." Ezekiel, I want you to. I want you to cause. The city of Jerusalem, and that stands in for the nation, I want you to let them know why they are being swept away in this horrendous Babylonian captivity. Tell them. Take it over to verse 23, and Ezekiel will tell them. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. Her priests within her are like wolves, tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lies in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, "'Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice.'" I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Why did God destroy his ancient people? One of the reasons, one of the main reasons behind their apostasy, their their turning from God, is the false prophets among them. And that the people tolerated the false prophets, and by the end, the people appreciated the false prophets. Those who spoke lies, that's what the people wanted. It was the means of their spiritual undoing. These dangerous pseudo-spokesman for God came in and and waxed eloquent and the people ate it up. The result was that God destroyed the nation, swept them away into a 70-year captivity. Listen, beloved, if a church falls prey to the same basic idea, that is that that they get to a place where they no longer discern truth from error, they no longer care, they don't want someone who will confront them with the truth. They want someone who will, who will pat them on the back. Someone who will, who will rub their head and tell them all is okay when all is not okay. That a church can fall. just like the nation fell. They are dangerous times and they are dangerous people. We need to be vigilant. Number six. They are detectable. Praise the Lord. They are detectable. They're deceptive, all right. They're devilishly motivated. They're exceedingly dangerous. But they are detectable. God has not left His children defenseless. And so let's look at some passages. Let's go back to Deuteronomy Go back into that Old Testament. God has given His, His children, His people, a means to smoke out the false teacher, the false prophet. And it begins in Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. And here in this passage, God, through Moses, gives a twofold test two-fold test. I call it the miracles test and the loyalty test. It's the miracles test and the loyalty test. So let's take it up. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. Stop there. It begins with the miracles test. That is, the the prophet here or the dreamer of dreams who comes to them, there has to be some kind of validating sign. They need, to do, they need to do something, some kind of sign or wonder must accompany the prophet. And if they can't do something that would appear to certify God is speaking through them, then you just say, go away. Go away. If God is speaking through you, let him prove it. So the signs and the wonders are given to, to certify. But one is a spokesman for God. Anyway, with that basic understanding, you can read the New Testament and you will have a lot of light thrown on the whole issue of the miraculous in the New Testament. It is the sign of God's certification. But it can be falsified. And that's why this is a twofold test. It is the miracles test and the loyalty test and they go together here in Deuteronomy 13. Notice that it is possible, and we read it in Matthew 24, right at the end, that the false prophet can, can do deceiving signs and wonders. So it's, it's possible that someone can do something that appears to be truly miraculous, and God is not with them. So if they can't do anything miraculous, you can just discard them. If they can, that doesn't mean that you immediately say, well, they must have a word from the Lord. You have to, you have to apply the loyalty test. And the loyalty test is very simply this. Does that which they say draw you to God? If it doesn't draw you to God, if it doesn't doesn't draw you to that which God has previously revealed, then it's false. Then it's false. By the way, um, when you think about the prophets of the Old Testament, the vast majority of what they say that is written down for us here is not of a predictive nature. The vast majority of what they say is, is given to call people back to the Mosaic Covenant. They're preachers in that sense. There, there are predictive elements that are interspersed with it, but, but the vast majority of their words are not predictive. You know, a day after tomorrow this is going to happen. In fact, just the opposite. The vast majority of their words are to, are to call the people to repentance. And so Moses, God through Moses, says here, listen, if they're not calling you to repentance, if they're not calling you back to the covenant made there at Sinai, then they are false. This, by the way, and I've said this to a few people, this, by the way, is why the book of Romans, where two places, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 25, you don't have to write them down, you figure it out on your own, but... Two places in the book of Romans, which is Paul's most comprehensive presentation of what he calls in those two places, my gospel. This is why the book of Romans is absolutely chock full of Old Testament citations. Why does Paul quote the Old Testament so often in Romans where he is laying out what he calls his gospel? The answer is very simple. Because if Paul's gospel does not comport with that which has previously been revealed in the Old Testament, then it is false. And you have a false apostle. So Paul does it, the reason he quotes it, is to show you that what he is preaching very much is in line with what God has previously revealed. Turn over to chapter 18, same book, and we will have the prediction test. We've got the miracles and the loyalty test in Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, we have the prediction test, Deuteronomy 18 verses 21-22. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Someone comes to you, says, I'm a prophet of God, I've got a word from the Lord for you, and you say, well, how do I know? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come true, or does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has has spoken it, presumptuously you shall not be afraid of him. Very simple. How do I know this is the word of the Lord? Answer, it comes true. It's simple as that. The prediction test. It comes true. If it doesn't come true, they don't speak for God. They don't speak for God. Now we can see this played out. Let me take you to Jeremiah 28. And I don't know what the odds were, but they've probably been growing over time here. And it looks like, uh, yea, indeed, yea, and verily, we're not gonna make it, Robert. Jeremiah twenty-eight. I'll show you. i show you this um, prediction test in action. There's a false prophet, Hananiah. If you have a heading in your Bible, it probably says over chapter 28 Hananiah's false prophecy. Jeremiah is the true prophet of God. And notice uh, in his response here to, to the false prophet, Hananiah. Hananiah is speaking peace, actually, in verse 11. He says uh, in the middle of the verse, uh, within two full years, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, will be broken from the necks of all the nations. That's his false prophecy. He's saying, listen, I know, you know, that the, the, the uh, Babylonians have, have swept you away, but don't worry, it's only going to be a short thing. Two years, that's it. Two years, God is going to break the king of Babylon and he's going to release the peoples. That's his false prophecy. Jeremiah says, oh, no. Verse 8. Hanani, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Hananiah, if you are really speaking for God and you're you're saying that in two years the, the yoke of the king of Babylon will be broken, then we can figure out whether you're telling the truth or not. All we have to do is wait how long? Two years. All we have to do is wait two years and we will know. And by the way, Hananiah, your prophecy goes against all the other prior prophecies of the prophets of God who have said that it's going to be a long and dark The validity of the long-term prediction is based upon the actuality of the short-term prediction. Let me take you to Second Chronicles as we finish this out. Second Chronicles. show you know what I mean by that? It's really cool, by the way, when you, you, know, you read these things. Like the prediction test in Deuteronomy eighteen, you go oh, okay. That's that's good, but does anyone ever use it? Well, yeah, actually they do. So you got Second Chronicles eighteen. Really interesting uh, thing going on here. This is where uh, Jehoshaphat king of the house of Judah, allies himself with Ahab, who is king over the northern tribes and in their full rebellion. So we have the the true followers of God in now an alliance, a military alliance, with the nation that's in rebellion. And uh, before uh, Jeroboam or excuse me, Jehoshaphat and Ahab go out to battle. They want to consult the prophets and find out how this thing is going to go. So they consult the prophets and they, they bring out the false prophets and they say, oh yeah, go for it, man. You're going to tear them up. And Jehoshaphat says, well, isn't there any like, prophet of God around here we could consult? And Ahab says, yeah, there's one, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me. <laughs> and so uh, Jehoshaphat says, well, can, can we just at least ask him? So they send him, they get him out of jail. His name is uh, Micaiah. Micaiah. And they go and they get him out of jail. And as they get him out of jail, they're, they're instructing him along the way. And they're saying, listen now, this is your chance. Just say something good. And uh, then you won't have to go back to jail. And so they bring him forward. And uh, they say, so what do, you, what do you have to say, Micaiah? And he says, uh, yeah, go for it, man. You're going to do a great job. And Ahab said, see, I told you. He doesn't like me. <laughs> no, say the truth. And he says, okay, I'll I'll tell you the truth. Ahab, you're going to die today. That's the truth. And the false prophets, they say, uh, you know, basically, hey, when did the word of the Lord pass from me to you? Micaiah says, uh, if my prophecy doesn't come true, that's where I want to pick it up here. Verse 27. Micaiah said, if you indeed return safely, Ahab, the Lord has not spoken by me. And then Micaiah turns to all the people that are standing around observing this, and he says, listen, all you people. Listen. If Ahab comes back safely, then I don't speak for God. Verses 33-34. Oh, we forgot the part earlier in that where... uh, where uh, Ahab says to uh, Jehoshaphat, now i got this battle plan. What I want to do is I want you to wear your royal robes into the battle and I'm going to dress up in disguise. And Jehoshaphat says, yes, sure thing. And he he does. You wear a bullseye and I'm going to wear camouflage. (laughs) Got it. But that's what they do. Verse 33. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of the chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot in front of the Arameans until the evening, and at sunset he died. He bled out. Micaiah, are you a true prophet of God? You bet. You bet. The, the, the efficacy of the short-term prophecy, that it comes true, means that the things that he speaks about in a long-term sense will also come true. The prediction test. There's one more test to uh, that we don't have uh, time to cover, but I'll just show you where it is and then we'll come back to it. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Amazing how we keep winding our way back there, right? I'll just show it to you. We won't deal with it yet. We have the miracles test. We have the loyalty test. We have the prediction test. And, and here in Matthew 7, verses 16 to 20, we have the fruit test, or, or I'm, I'm liking to call it the genetics test, the genetics test. So the miracles test, the loyalty test, the prediction test, and the genetics test so if you will come back next time we will take it up there let's pray father thank you for our time in the word this morning we are certainly uh, moving all over the scriptures and, and looking at this serious and important topic we thank you our father that you have not left us blind and defenseless against the onslaught of those who are satanically motivated and and seek the destruction of our soul and the ruination of your church. But that you have given us through your inerrant word the means to smoke them out, to ferret out the truth. So our Father, it's an obvious deduction that if we're to to do that, then we need to become skillful workmen in the word. I can't help but thinking of the Iwana verse, 2 Timothy 2.15, where approved workmen are not ashamed, Paul says there to, to study the Scriptures so that we can handle them well. Father, that's my hope for all of us, that you would enable each and every one of us to become good workmen in the Word, that we might stand firm in the face of onslaught, that you would protect your church here from the evil one who would seek to destroy it and tear and shred. She would enable us to speak boldly and winsomely the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our Father is so simple if we will but entrust ourselves to Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Come on back, beloved. One more to go.